You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, it's, it's these interruptions that are there to teach you the lessons we need to live. Your guide on the side. What creates higher trust for you and the people around you? This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. You know, one of the biggest victims of this new age of information and uh, technology is going to be the relationship, right? And as a relationship coach, uh, I do believe it's something we need to pay close attention to. So it will be today's topic of the Coach's Corner. How do we how do we close the closeness gap? Many people are struggling um, feeling close to another person. They, they, they feel lonely personally and, uh, you know, interpersonally, they feel like they just aren't close to their partner, to their kids. Um, it's hard when everyone's sitting looking at their phones and no one's connecting and talking. You might start to feel like you don't matter, that you are irrelevant. And um, there's it is a plague, quite honestly, and, and yet it's something that we, we can fix. But like our good guest Andrew Merle was just saying, you might need to make some choices, like the choice to put the phone away. And that's that's easier said, and I say it, and every time I say it, I notice that I, I still have a hard time putting my phone away because the phone makes it so I don't need to be vulnerable. I don't need to talk to anybody. I'm tired. Just once I pull it out, everyone kind of leaves me alone. But some of that then fosters this sense of loneliness. And uh, one of the things, there's a great book out there that I would highly recommend um, uh, called Stop Being Lonely. And it's um, uh, the Kira, Kira somebody. Let me find, look up her name. But it's in the book. Um, one of the ideas behind the concept of stop being lonely is what we really need to do is start to feel more um, more of an ability to get to understand the people around us. We really have to kind of step in and get uh, to understand who we are married to, who we are living with. Uh, Kira Asatryan is the author of the book, Stop Being Lonely, Three Simple Steps to Developing Close Relationships and Deep, or Close Friendships and Deep Relationships. But one of the interesting things she teaches is uh, don't just assume you understand the person you're with. And I did this yesterday with a, with a couple where I had them identify on a list of positive traits and negative traits um, what are their top, you know, eight you know, positive ways that they see themselves and what are some of the negative ways they see themselves that, that they in – their, in their head, in their heart of hearts, they really – they feel this way. Uh, they, they, and, and basically, this couple had been arguing about a situation and um, we did this activity and then I had them turn to each other and talk about what they found. One person's uh, – one of his top traits was loyalty. Another person's top trait, the female's top trait was – um, just just uh, com- compassion and, um, you know, and, and just a sense of compassion for others. And what ends up happening is uh, the, the male's negative trait was stubbornness and the female's negative trait was confusion. So what ends up happening in their relationship is a lot of times the, the wife is compassionately serving her children while the husband is lonely and loyal and wondering why she isn't more loyal to him. And then they fight. 
And what was amazing is, is I had them start identifying how they both see themselves and how their partner sees themselves. It changes the entire discussion. He's not being stubborn because he hates her. He's being stubborn because that's just his weakness. And she doesn't get confused about not loving him or loving the kids. I mean, that confusion is not coming because she doesn't love him. It's coming because she's so compassionate. She's going to always take care of the one that's in the need. Well, then he has to create a need for her to be able to be compassionate. The power of if you want to be um, more connected to others is you've got to understand where they're coming from, from their frame of reference. If they're trying to do something and they want loyalty, you need to understand that. If they want more compassion, you need to understand that. Understanding somebody is the antidote to creating a closer relationship. So a little challenge for you. Put down the phones. Go try to understand each other. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Politics. We talk about it all the time. We spent the whole first hour of the show, if you missed it, reviewing uh, the Super Saturday and, you know, all the latest and greatest. But one of the things that I run into, because I have six children, and I'm trying to raise them in a healthy world, right? But my kids are all uh, from ten years of 10 years of age up to 22. And they're getting into this political race, every one of them. Uh, the other night we were watching one of the debates and every one of my kids from 10 up had questions about what's going on. They, they asked things like, why is Donald such a such a bully? You know, is Hillary Clinton going to jail because of her emails? I ask them, where do you guys get these ideas? And they say they're talking about it in school. So they're bringing up the debates in their school. And it dawned on me that um, – I probably need to be teaching my kids more about politics and about how this process works. So I put together some points about how to raise positive people instead of powerful politicians. I also realized that uh, there's probably no more political environment that exists than in the halls of a junior high school where it's, you know, the jocks versus the geeks versus the whatever, surfers, whatever you've got, the, the, the boarders, whatever you call them, the skaters. It's political. It's a crazy political world. And so here are three very basic lessons um, uh, that I try to teach my kids from what we're seeing in a debate, for example – and real-life situations that they can go use in their own world. Number one, actions speak louder than words, right? Let our actions do the talking, not our words. You'll notice some politicians can get up there and just talk about their, their results um, because they, they have results, or any of the candidates do. They talk about what they've done in their life that shows that they're a trustworthy candidate. Uh, some people, though, also try to use their words to cover up their past, Gandhi had a great quote that said, you can't talk your way out of something you behaved your way into. So if, if you've had bad behavior in the past, try to talk all you want about it. It doesn't go away by you talking. It goes away by getting results. So positive people trust that their past is going to do the talking for them. They might need to you know, share their past, but they don't need to exaggerate. They don't need to name call. They don't need to make stuff up about others which we see going on in this political debate. We, we, we don't have to be full of anger and name-calling in order to get and be seen. 
We also, you'll notice when people are starting to up the rhetoric, when they're starting to become more aggressive, when they speak louder, when their speech is faster, they're probably trying to distract you. They're getting hijacked, I call it, and they're distracting you from the real issue. So notice it. And I talk to my kids about it. A, a, a leader does this. A leader speaks this way. A leader doesn't talk about other people. They talk about their results. They talk about their goals. They don't have to tear down someone else's position. They can focus on their position instead of being calculated and, you know, name-calling. And we've talked about it on the show. In this last election, we've heard, heard about people's hands, hair, spray tans, sweatiness, their tone, all of it. Another rule is value people more than popularity and power. If you want to be an influential leader, then value people. Don't just value being popular. A healthy, positive person sees the inherent worth of everybody. They don't just see people as a voting block. They don't, know, they don't even try to break people into their groups. They try to see that all people are whole. They're all, they all have physical, social, emotional, spiritual needs. Our politicians break us into social groups by color, by race, or by, by gender, by, um, by how much income we make. We, we aren't just a bunch of groups. I'm more than my ethnicity. I'm more than my religion. I'm more than my gender. I'm a whole person. So see people as a whole. And also don't see people as just a means to your end. How many times do you feel like these politicians are taking you for granted because you're a means to them getting elected? And I think some of the anger we see in the country is the mere fact that we we nominate you, we elect you, but we don't end up getting taken care of. I think that's why so many people are sick and tired of politics. People value the people. Value them for just being a fellow traveler on this earth, not somebody that's going to make you more popular. That, this goes on in high school too. Whether you're a jock or a cheerleader or a skater or whatever, you've got to just learn to like people instead of using people to get what you want. Last rule I try to teach my kids is the confidence is going to always come from the inside out, not the outside in. That's exactly the opposite of what we see most of our politicians ex, you know, exhibiting. Their confidence comes from their last poll. How many times do the polls get brought up in this process? The person that is talking the most about the polls probably is the most insecure person. The poll is not the key, right? At some point, I need to get my confidence from the inside. Positive, healthy people get their confidence from knowing who they are, knowing what they believe in, having a belief system that they're living. Their confidence comes from being a good person who believes in certain principles and lives certain principles. And they'll stand by their principles even if they don't win the election even if they're not seen as popular. And that changes them on the inside. When we look at the politicians that are constantly shifting and changing, we worry about them. I also, by the way, worry about politicians that can't collaborate. You can still try to understand someone else's needs and live your principles and find some meeting place in the middle, something I think our, our politicians are struggling with. This isn't about polls. This isn't about popularity. But I know it is for a 14-year-old kid that wants to be popular with his peer group and might end up doing stupid things in order to get elected or in order to be brought into that peer group. What I'm afraid of, though, is we're seeing the same thing in our political world. Very basic stuff, right? 
Confidence comes from the inside out, not the outside in. Value people more than popularity. And actions speak louder than words. Oh, if I can teach it to my uh, my 12-year-old, my 15-year-old, we could probably teach it to our politicians. Wouldn't that be great? You're listening to The Matt Townsend Show right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, imagine living without one of your senses, and then one day just switches on. Suddenly you can hear for the first time or see color. Well, our next guest, John Elder Robinson, knows what it feels like, but John wasn't blind or deaf. Before this miraculous change, Mr. Robison has Asperger's, a form of autism, that left him without the ability to read emotions, and he's here to talk about how his life suddenly changed. Uh, John Elder Robison, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks for inviting me on with you today, yes. You, you bet. Thanks for being here. And you've written many books um, uh, about your, your journey with, uh, with Asperger's. Talk to us about your latest book, Switched On. What do you mean, what switched in you, John? Uh, what switched on in me was the ability to uh, read emotional cues from other people. I was always able to feel emotions. Um, autistic people are often thought as not having emotions because yeah. we don't show emotional signals a lot of the time. But we actually feel things very deeply. And, and for me, the disconnect and disability was that I couldn't read cues from other people. So if someone was sad, I couldn't sense, for example, that she was sad. Right. I couldn't offer comfort. And I was seen as callous and uncaring when, in fact, I cared very much. Huh. So you f- and that was a, a disabling thing to me. Now, was John? Is that is that with most Aspergers people that are that are uh, that have Aspergers? They they can feel the emotion. They just can't see the cues. Um, it's probably not quite as simple as that, but that is the gist of it. Okay. Uh, autism. If you've got an autism diagnosis, whether that's autism, PDDNOS, Aspergers. That means that you've got some kind of communication impairment. You might, um, in traditional autism, have a hard time understanding spoken words or speaking words yourself. Um, With uh, Asperger's, you're more likely to have difficulty understanding the nonverbal cues that make up such a big part of interpersonal communication. Hmm. Did you... um... You say it just switched on. Your ability now to read the cues switched on. Uh, it did. Now, that was a temporary thing. It didn't switch on forever, but what, it, what happened was the uh, experimental stimulations that I took part in uh-huh. at uh, one of the Harvard teaching hospitals in Boston, Beth Israel, uh, they temporarily turned on the ability to see emotions in other people at a very strong and intense level. Wow. And actually, that was disabling. I was overwhelmed by the ordinary emotion of daily life. And, um, and that gradually faded away, but it left me permanently changed. Hmm. Um, just imagine, you know, if you were a colorblind person all your life, 
and and you got to be middle-aged and you just got angry when people talked about beautiful blue sky or green grass because you saw the evidence of your eyes that it was all gray and and then imagine you go in a doctor's office and they switch on color for you and even if color fades away the next day you're going to live the rest of your life with the knowledge that color is real and it's going to change how you see and do everything Mm -hmm. and that's how it is for me and and it's overwhelming you said now this took place in a car ride is that is that what happened well um the stimulations took place in a uh, neuroscience clinic at Beth Israel Hospital in Boston and what was interesting was the scientists thought that they would stimulate me for half an hour and there would be direct effects that they could measure for about 15 minutes after so they were very anxious to stimulate me and then test me. And to do that, they put me in front of a computer monitor where I looked at faces with different expressions and pushed buttons for mm-hmm. what they meant. Um, and I didn't feel any different doing that test. So then I sat around the hospital doing you know, paperwork and stuff like that. And I left about two hours later. And it was only when I was in the car listening to music that this like tsunami of emotion washed over me. And and it was totally unexpected because they had said, well, any effects are going to be long gone by the time you leave the hospital. Mm-hmm. So to be overwhelmed by it that night and then have it carry on, you know, for days after, that was a, it was remarkable, but totally unexpected. Oh, yeah. And I, I guess mind-blowing, overwhelming, because one of the things I, I read is that you've, I guess you discerned that the majority or a large percentage of our emotions aren't positive. Well, for for you to say that now, I guess I could like look back on that time and I could say what a naive fool I was to think any different. The right. newspapers are full of bad news, but I had this, I guess, kind of fantasy because I was blind to these emotional signals. I thought there must be all these beautiful, sweet, kind messages that I'm missing, and if I could receive those messages, I would be so much happier. <laughs> And and that fantasy wasn't real, unfortunately. Wow! I mean, really, it's I guess it's it's groundbreaking. It's exciting to think that such, you know, um, such therapy might help and work. But it also is for a man, you know, that's an adult who's experienced life differently. It's got to be just almost earth shattering to then have to deal with emotion constantly. You know, there have been accounts from people who were blind or deaf all their lives, and thanks to modern medical science, they acquire the ability to see or hear in middle age. And those people find what you would think was the relief of a significant disability to be overwhelming and disabling in itself. And for me, seeing emotion... It was a a dream come true, but when it came true, it wasn't necessarily all I imagined it would be. I saw a lot of sadness, angst, fear, worry, and and I began to internalize all those things that I had been kind of protected against all my life. Hmm. Is it... Uh, it's interesting, isn't it? Because you Asperger's is is who you are, right? It's, It's one of the points you make in one of your books that... It's just it's who you are. It's not just a it's not a sickness. It's it's your personality and then all of a sudden your personality was multiplied I guess by whatever 10 and then 
you then taken away again. When you lost the ability to see the emotion, what did that do to you? Was that a relief? The ability to see emotion came on suddenly, truly like flipping a switch. The fading away was very gradual, and even today, my ability to um, read emotions in conversation and seeing people is markedly better Hmm. than it ever was earlier in my life. So even as it faded away, it is not entirely gone. And that was, as I say, a gradual, gentle thing. Um, One thing that I realized in doing this is that there's no free ride. People often say things like, well, 90% of our brain isn't even being used, and if only we could use it, we would be so much more productive. But in fact, studies show that we do use all our brains. And so when you make a change in me and, and I could suddenly see emotion, it's fair to ask, what were those parts of my brain that see emotion doing before? Mm-hmm. And, and, in, and I now think that those areas of my brain might have been what helped me have a unique insight into machinery and mechanical things. That's what made me successful as an engineer. It's not so much having Asperger's as the ability to see into machines. That was unique. Seeing into people, in a sense, just made me ordinary. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So it it becomes your gift. It becomes your advantage. Asperger's is an advantage. And you can change it and become normal, <laughs> air quotes. Well, there's, there's many things about me that are still disabled. So Asperger's is not entirely an advantage. There's, they call it a disability because there's stuff that's disabling. But that particular thing, seeing into machinery, and that, was, that has been a powerful advantage for me all my life. And I believe that's absolutely due to Asperger's, yes. Hmm. Wonderful. And now, um, did you continue the therapy? Are you still doing that therapy? I took part in six studies. Three of the studies were aimed at measuring a parameter called brain plasticity. It's how the brain changes in response to stimulation. Mm -hmm. Those studies didn't have any effect on how I think or perceive the world. And then I took part in three studies that really changed how I see everything. And those studies were in 2008, 2009, and 2010. I haven't done any TMS uh, experiments since then. Is it um, – what, what were the findings in the study? If the you findings, know. it was really interesting. They were published in some neuroscience journals. And if you were to read what the scientists published – they, it was very dry and technical. It was, they said things like, well, we had you know, a dozen subjects, and we, we put them in front of a monitor, and we tested them recognizing faces. And then we did TMS stimulations to these areas, and we tested them again. And the autistic subjects, many of them showed noticeably better ability to recognize expressions. So they said that. We were not, a number of us were noticeably better. And they said the people who were not autistic were not affected at all by the stimulations, which I thought was interesting, that even though it made us better, it didn't make people who were not autistic super better. Yeah, right. do anything for them. But if you read what they wrote, it's like 
the life-changing things that happened to me weren't even part of the medical journal articles. They only described what happened in the 15 minutes after the stimulations. Yeah. What about what happened in the days and weeks and months? And that isn't even mentioned in the journal article. Oh, that's sad. Because I mean, well, that, that, I don't know if it's sad. I mean, that's like that's how medical research is structured, yeah. I guess. But that's where the hope is, right? I mean, that's an outlier that they need to go explore, and I'm sure they are. But you're, you're absolutely right. My experience was totally unexpected, and and I think that it is. It's full of hope, not just yeah. for autism and Asperger's, but also it's full of hope for the power of TMS to change the mind to treat other conditions that are really formerly untreatable. Yeah. Oh, I think it's fantastic. And and even just to have the experience. I mean, if every human being, John, could have an experience that is that awakening, um it, it's it would probably it, it it would have incredible uh impact I think on how we treat each other, how we see the world. Uh, I just think it's 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 so insightful. I want to take a break. We'll come back, John, and continue this discussion. I, I really want to know um, what what the rest of us need to learn um, about just what you're experiencing, having not had the emotional you know gifts, and then having received it, and then still kind of in, in a more moderate level how it's impacting you. Stick with us, folks. We'll continue this discussion about the book "Switched On: A Memoir of Brain Change and Emotional Awakening." by John Elder Robinson. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Townsend Show. Can you imagine having your hearing turned on for the first time? As and you're an adult, and all of a sudden you can hear everything. The birds, you know, you can you can hear the moans of your children as they you tell them to go to bed. It could be overwhelming, right? To have uh, to have this one of your senses reignited. Well, our guest today, John Elder Robison. Um, has Asperger's, which is a form of autism, that left him without the ability to um, read emotions. And uh, he then went through some therapy and um, for a while had uh, had his the switch switched on. The emotional recognition switch kicked on. And in a profound way, he still has many benefits of, of the ability to still uh, sense and, and see emotion a little bit better today. But he's walking us through some of his lessons, and uh, we appreciate you, John, being here. It really is an interesting book. It's quite a journey, really. It's, you know, what I've just realized that's kind of remarkable is that people, after I wrote Look Me in the Eye, they remarked on the different things I'd been successful with, you know, being an engineer for rock and roll bands and working on some of the uh, earlier electronic games and toys, and then course taking up book writing and photography but all those things are solitary activities i hmm. did them alone you yeah know, you do that kind of stuff alone and if you look at what i'm known for today today i serve on the federal government committee that makes the strategic plan for autism along with 35 other people wow i teach uh, neurodiversity and autism 
at William and Mary in Virginia, again, with a bunch of students and, and fellow faculty. I, I serve on a bunch of different committees uh, advocating for autism and people with differences. All those things are group activities. Never in my life was I successful in a group activity before doing these experiments, hmm. and now that's like the main focus of my life. And I realized, isn't that kind of a remarkable change? Yeah. I mean, it really is. And it's so is that, John, your point that there's hope? I mean, there's you this with with Asperger's. It's not a death sentence. It's you also have gifts coming from it as well. Um, And it's that there's there's hope that I guess with some of the therapies, but even just, I guess, with some understanding, you might be able to improve your conditions. I think one aspect of hope is that my experience uh, suddenly seeing emotion after not seeing it all these years showed me that maybe the grass isn't always greener, as mm. I thought it was. And that in itself is hopeful for young people with Asperger's, just that it helped me see my gifts more clearly. But at the same time, I recognize that there are probably quite a few people on the autism spectrum who feel just like I do. They feel disabled by a limited ability to read emotional cues in other people, and they think, what if I could make that better in myself? And I think the promise that we have a therapy under research now that can truly do that, that has the potential to be life-changing for others, just as it was life-changing for me. And finally, there's the promise of TMS to treat other conditions like epilepsy, addiction, anxiety, and, and those things can be truly life-saving. Mm. And again, we're just we're really on the cutting edge right now, right? It's just getting That's started. Really it. T- TMS is a targeted therapy where they're firing electromagnetic energy into an area of your brain that's maybe between the size of a marble and the size of a golf ball. So if you kind of hold a marble up to your head and you imagine in this area holding it up by your temple, we could impact seeing emotions and autism. And then you hold it maybe over by your left ear and you think in this area we can relieve depression because there's a thousand TMS centers treating depression in the United States today. And then think, how many other places could we put that on your head and what conditions might we be able to treat all the other places we can place it? We haven't even scratched the surface with the potential. Wow. And and TMS stands for what? Transcranial? Transcranial magnetic stimulation. Yeah. And it's a process where they use an electrical coil, like an electromagnet in science class, and they pulse it with energy. And whenever they pulse it, it induces tiny electrical currents in your brain underneath the coil. Hmm. So it's done while you're fully awake and conscious. You don't feel uh, pain. You might feel it feels like kind of weird. It like puts your mind in neutral, mm-hmm. but it's it's definitely not not a painful thing. Wow. And um, and it's a gentle process in that it's not done under anesthesia. People sometimes compare it to ECT. Uh, ECT is a violent jolting of the brain that's done under anesthesia. Yeah, right. Millions of times gentler than that. Now, and you, it's targeted. ECT goes all through your head. Yeah. This doesn't. Are you, you're married, right, John? I am. I actually got divorced 
after the TMS sessions, and then I that's remarried what, a few years later. Well, yes. what, that's what I wanted to ask you is how did it impact your relationships? Because it opened your eyes to such a new kind of world, um, but it also opened yourself up to pain more. As much as I feel hopeful about the promise of TMS, I have to say the impact on the relationships I had going into it was sad. Hmm. My wife had been depressed most of her life. She's just a person with clinical depression. And because I'm oblivious, I guess, to that, or I was... Uh, she could wake up in the morning and feel like, well, I can't go to work today. I'm really, I'm just, I'm just feeling really sad today. And I would say, okay, well, I'm going to go. I'm going to go. I'll see you later. Yeah. And I could, um, I could live with that. It was okay. We got along and it was, a, 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 it was okay. But then after TMS, suddenly I saw her depression and it was like a suffocating mat. And I felt like I was drowning. Mm. And married life foundered as a result. And, and that's a really, really sad and totally unexpected result of the TMS. I, I would never have expected that. And, right. and you know what was also really sad? What? Was looking at memories where I remembered laughing with other people. Mm-hmm. And suddenly with the knowledge of TMS, it's... It's so weird that I saw my memories in a different light, and I realized I was the joke. They were laughing at me. Uh, and all of a sudden, where it used to feel funny, now it was hurtful and mean. Yeah. And, and I remembered so many things from my past that I thought were okay or funny, and now they're painful, bad memories. And I can't remember a single thing from my past that turned good in comparison, only things that turned bad. Oh, wow. And, and I now see how autism provided me a tremendous protective shield. And I think about that, and I think, well, aren't I better off to realize those people were laughing at me and they weren't my true friends? And, and I guess that's true. But you know, it hurts to know that. Yeah. And, and sometimes you think, Maybe I'd rather just be dumb. What was the harm in that to to not see it? I'd rather not have known. That's right. No, I mean, isn't that – it's the double-edged sword you brought up, huh? It sure is, and, and that was really, really painful. But I have to say that knowing the truth is probably always better, just yeah. that it hurts. Yeah, and it also kind of just this crazy balance that a lot of us have been thrown into where – you know, we we not only maybe can see the emotion, but we also have the ability to to manage the relationship. Um, and yet, too, the blessing of knowing that when with, with your autism, you also had the gift of understanding machinery, kind of on a genius level. That that was a great gift as well. I mean, it's it's like we all carry gifts, don't we, and curses. I think we do. Sometimes people. Um miss that, especially parents with children on the autism spectrum, yeah. because we learn about autism when we're diagnosed because we fail at something. We don't ever learn about it because of the ways it makes us exceptional. And, and autism has disabled me in, in ways like seeing into other people, mm-hmm. but it's provided me the gifts that have made me a successful person, too. Oh, totally. Well, and John, we appreciate you sharing those gifts. That, uh, 
really very insightful into the power of emotion and autism and Asperger's. Um, it's really a beautiful story. John Elder Robison, thank you so much. Again, if they go to the website, johnrobison.com, they can, you can get all of his books, his materials, find out how to come in and have him come in and, and counsel your organization on autism as well. John Elder Robison, great stuff. New York Times bestseller, folks, and who to thunk it, right? Turn on the emotions, and you still have memories, right? So your memories, you'll go through it with all of your new emotional insight. But how stressful, how difficult, too. Mm. Consider yourself blessed, folks, uh, for for just being where you are and having what you have. Because uh, there's a lot that can go wrong and could go right that could add so much to life in complexity and joy. There's the crazy paradox. We'll take a break, folks. Come back, continue the discussion. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. How crazy is that? He gets the therapy, the TMS therapy on his brain. His emotions kick in. You know, ironically, like an hour later than they were testing. So they're like, yeah, this didn't work. And then the next month or whatever, his life is ruined because he's overwhelmed with emotion. And imagine, too, having to go through all of your memories. I was reading the... uh kind of book description yeah. of, of his story. And it's that idea that you go through this treatment and then every your life that you've built up to this point and coping mechanisms and everything that's built in, you now have to readdress it all because oh. now you can recognize emotion. Uh-huh. And then like you were saying, even with his marriage... You, you now all of a sudden there's... realize your, your wife's pain yeah. and even your coldness to her pain. But as long as you have a memory... Every emotion can be replayed. So isn't that, in a way, it's torture. Yeah, so he said there was kind of a a moment he had to kind of deal with some loss there because what he was doing before had to go away now because he was recognizing the emotion and how he reacted and related to other people. Okay, okay, here's, I'm going to go crazy on you here. Uh So maybe this is what hell is. Whoa. So maybe when we all die... You're not just going to go burn in a fire pit Hmm. with the dark side. Maybe you're just going to be given a full understanding of your life and go revisit it Hmm. with this new light. Like the good parts? Well, so the good parts will be sweet Hmm. and then the bad parts will be heightened because you're like, oh, jeez, I blew that. Or will it just be the bad parts? No, I don't think – I think it will – because Joy was – life is great. Okay. She'll have a – But great, you'll have to have the upper downs to understand the downs. Yeah. Okay. Maybe that's mm-hmm. what happens when we're all done here. We just get all of our faculties back and you're a fully operational spiritual being. I'm just throwing it out there. That's – Hey, write a book. I'm going to write a book on that. Will you make a note of that? <laughs> write a book on that. <laughs> I figured out where hell is. It might be in our very head. Could be. What are we going to name the book? Ben. <laughs> dot, 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 where hell is. <laughs> wow. I don't know. I don't know. 
We'll, it's just, he's just that's that, that, just my working title, right? <laughs> we'll workshop it. We'll figure it out. <laughs> I'll see you there. Man. I love Ben. Okay, what, what? In other news, <laughs> yeah, the Colorado one, it's a newspaper, Yeah, reports a, 20, also a person from Colorado. A 28-year-old babysitter allegedly used two children she was taking care of to rob a bank Friday. <laughs> Authorities say Rachel uh, Eisenfarr, I guess, pulled up to a drive-thru at the Colorado East Bank and Trust, used the vacuum tube to send the note to the teller. The note claimed there was a man in her SUV who was threatening to hurt her kids if she didn't get the money for him. This report from the AP, the bank teller, oh, wow. under the assumption that lives were in danger, gave her $500. NBC News quotes a sheriff's office statement saying the SUV was found by authorities soon after the incident. The two suspects were detained. The sheriff's office says there were never any, there's never actually a man in the SUV, and it's unclear who the second person detained was. The woman was arrested on suspicion of robbery and child abuse. The children were not harmed in the bank robbery. But she had them in the back seat. Uh, well, hey, they're going to hurt the kids. <laughs> Honestly. Again, we just came off of the guy that yeah. have has Asperger's and no emotion. Did she not? She's probably got an addiction or something. Yeah, she has other motivations probably. Ay, caramba. Good to it's, – it's good to be semi-healthy. You know what I mean? I guess that's probably the most any of us could ask for. Semi-healthy. Semi-healthy. There's a positive outlook on life. Semi-lucid and coherent and present. That's what we think until we're all in hell and we realize how unhealthy we were. Apparently, it's just like talking to Ben. (laughs) That's just the name of the book. Ben, I'll see you somewhere. Um, Good stuff. We're learning, folks. We're learning, right? That's what this is about, figuring it out. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. Next hour, more fun, more ideas to help you live longer and love stronger. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. What creates higher trust for you and the people around you? Your guide on the side. And a lot of us end up spending our entire life searching for what we expect instead of what has actually been given to us. Dr. Matt Townsend. I love talking to people that are at the top of their field, right? The top of their game, like uh, Brian Tracy. I mean, some people are sitting there like, well, I don't like people that try to make it sound that simple. And, um, you know, you don't have to go chasing money. You don't have to go be in love with money. And But the reality is there are people, and if you've ever been around somebody, I just sat down with somebody yesterday that is running a huge company, multi-billion dollar company. And he, with thousands of employees and tens of thousands of employees, and it's it's interesting how organized he really is and how it all comes down to very basic principles in his mind in his in his head it really is about principles and i think that's all brian was teaching us is there's just certain principles that are going to lead to success you can argue against them if you want but it's hard to argue that companies that focus on sales make more sales I mean, if if all of a sudden the average uh, corporation is spending 25% of their workforce, 30% of their money on creating and generating cells, 
And, uh, you know, a little homegrown business is spending 10% on sales. Wouldn't it make sense that the corporation's going to make more money? Right? That's not brain surgery. And yet, as a small business owner, it's hard to focus on sales if you don't love sales. I'd rather create content any day, but that's useless if no one's going to go sell the content. So if you want a company to succeed, you really need to do what works. How about just long-term thinking versus short-term thinking? Have you been so busy just living your life day in and day out that you didn't plan ahead for something down the road? Have you ever had a trip that you knew you were going to take in, you know, six months from now? And then you waited till three weeks before to get your passport? Oh, just long-term thinking, you know. It helps. It's not perfect, but it, it can certainly help. So anyway, it's uh, it's just some basic information. Um, and uh, But also, I think if you just look at uh, like Brian Tracy's success rate, it's pretty good. Pretty good. You, if you're selling millions and millions of books a year, you're doing you're doing okay. Doesn't make doesn't mean it's all perfect and great, but he's living his principles. He is creating sales. He is an entrepreneur. He is looking long term. If you're trying to grow a business, you probably ought to grow some of those principles as well. But there might be more uh, other things we can be doing. Let me give you a few more that that will definitely impact your ability to to live better. We might actually need to go back into our lives and eliminate some things, right? Get rid of certain things. There's a listen to this story of a 90-year-old woman um, from Michigan decided to turn her cancer diagnosis into an excuse to travel across the United States. The woman named Norma is accompanied by her son Tim, daughter-in-law Ramey, and their poodle Ringo. And they are out documenting their adventures via Facebook page, Driving Miss Norma. (laughs) Norma learned of her cancer within two weeks of her husband's death and told her son prior to the diagnosis that she had no interest in treatment. Her son and his wife then explained to the doctor they would be driving her around the country in her RV and ultimately receiving his blessing. As doctors, we see what cancer treatment looks like every day, he said. ICU, nursing homes, awful side effects, and honestly, there is no guarantee she will survive the initial surgery to remove the mass. You're doing exactly what I want to do in this situation. Have a fantastic trip, the doctor said. In August, the family upgraded their motor home to a larger 36-foot model and began their trip by traveling to Mount Rushmore in South Dakota before continuing through the country, visiting other landmarks, historical sites such as Kennedy Space Center in Florida, Ramey uh, told ABC News that in addition to seeing the sites and gaining more than 100,000 likes on her Facebook page, Norma's health seems to be improving. How cool is that? She's getting better, maybe, or at least feeling better. She's receiving the benefits of being different, doing something different. Notice she set a goal. She's figured out how the goal is going to work. What a great way. If, if, you gotta, if you got cancer and you got to deal with cancer, 
It sure sounds like a better way to do it. Now, um, I have put together in the past a project I call the Project of Elimination. There are certain things that keep us stuck. And um, I'm going to, as we do this little coach's corner, go through a bunch of different tools that you might want to just get rid of. Things you just need to declutter out of your head. Think of it as like a spring cleaning. You know, as as spring comes uh, and winter's done, it's time to clean out the house. Back in the day, remember, they'd bring out the rugs and they'd beat up their rugs to get all the dust out of them. It's time to spring clean. Let me give you a few things I'd suggest that you start to, to let go of. Number one, let go of the stories that don't serve you. How many times have we been telling stories that we really haven't even thought about, but we use these phrases like, I'm not very good at that. Yeah, I don't do that. I'm not a math person. We might quickly dismiss something we do by saying, ah, it's just the way I am. Yeah, I, you know, I'm not, I don't like to hold the grandbabies. I, I, I want them. I'm a, I'm a grandpa that'll play with them when they're older. Well, let go of that story and pick up your grandbaby. <laughs> Get rid of the story. You don't have to be pegged by something you thought you were 30 years ago. It's not like somebody's going to say, Grandpa, do this math. So you you don't have to be bad at math anymore. You've got a brain. You can still add. Anyway, it's simple to just sit there and have a trite phrase that we use all of the time. But many of these phrases, they're not going to help you. They beat you up. They They actually take away something. They could take away something like time with your kids or your grandkids. Yeah, I don't have time for that. Yeah, hobbies, you know, I don't golf because it's a waste of time. Now, you don't have to go golf, but that's also a story because it could be really time well spent. Exercising, hanging out with friends, opening your mind up, meditating, wrapping your golf club around a tree, stuff like that. Another thing we need to let go of is the need to keep score. Let's just get very clear, folks. Life isn't fair. So if it's not fair, then there's probably no value in keeping score. (laughs) People are going to step on you. They're going to make mistakes. Someone's going to pull in front of you, and it is going to slow you down ten hundredths of a second. Yeah, it happens. Doesn't mean you need to chase them down and pull in front of them. The reason why it's not useful to keep score is because much of life is intangible anyway. The greatest benefits in life are intangible. They're not even... You can't mark it. You can't compare it. The joy you feel being with a grandchild, the joy you feel watching your child have a home run or hit a home run in a game, man, that's incredible. And why are we keeping score? It's not fair. At some point, people are going to step on your toes. They're going to do stupid stuff. This isn't a race. This is called life. So if you feel a need to keep score constantly, then guess what? You're going to pay for it. There's going to be problems for you. Another thing we need to let go of are what I call the overs and the unders. Every one of us tends to take extremes in our lives. We either go overboard or under, right? So we play way too hard and excessive in what we do, 
We play to kill for keeps. We play to dominate. And some of us just don't play. Think about your life. Where are you overboard? Well, I I collect figurines. I have 12,000 of them. Okay, it's a little over. Maybe you're a little overboard on that. Uh, You don't have to be a fanatic to believe in God. You don't have to go overboard or under. Yeah, I don't even go to church. You can actually go to church and just be there. Be there your way. Yeah, but then they'll ask me to pray and no, I got to pray. And Well, you could say no. Overs and unders, we all do it. And it, sometimes it's over, you know, we're overconfident uh, and some of us are really underconfident. We lack the confidence we need. Are there certain things that take you to an extreme? Are you doing any activity excessively? Do you, oversch- do you overschedule your life? Do you overcommit to everything? Are you overly exhausted? Or do you, you know, have plenty of energy because you don't ever say yes to anything and you don't ever step out of your comfort zone? We might want to look at that and let go of it. You might want to let go of what's not working. Sometimes in life, there's just time to let go of stuff that just isn't working. More of the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, you happy people, you, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, everyone knows success and happiness are linked, right? The more successful you are in a career, the happier you are. Do you believe that? Actually, the idea of career success at any cost is resulting in more and more people being dissatisfied or unhappy with their life. And here to discuss this concept of uh, happiness and your smarts, is uh, who who better to teach us this than our than the professor uh, who wrote the book on it, Doctor Raj Ragunathan is joining us. He is a University of Texas business professor and uh, the author of the book. Uh, if you're so smart, why aren't you happy, Doctor Ragunathan? Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you so much. Great to have you here. Now, help me understand this, uh, Doctor Ragunathan. Why do we think? Um, you know, success, money equals happy, because it seems like that's been discredited for for a few years now. Yeah, so it's not as if the uh, there is no relationship between money and happiness. Uh, there is a positive relationship, but the relationship is much, much smaller than most people expect it to be. Um, and yes, it is true that uh, we have known this for some time, but I think one of the big reasons why we continue to think that money is going to bring us happiness is because that's what we experience in the short term. You know, imagine that you're earning $100,000 a year and you get a big bump. You get like $20,000 extra. When you hear that news, you actually feel very happy Hmm. and you mispredict how long it's going to last. That's the problem. You think that it's going to last forever. It turns out that it maybe lasts for two months, at most maybe three months, four months. And then you get adapted to that new level of wealth. And it is true that when your basic necessities are not met, you're struggling for food, clothing, shelter, more money can help. So there is a positive relationship between money and happiness before that limit of about $75,000 in the U.S. for a household. But beyond it, 
it turns out it doesn't really matter much. That's an interesting point, huh? that um, we, we actually get used to things that happen to us fairly quickly, so uh, the effect doesn't seem to last as long. Is that true with negative things? So if something if I if I lost 20 percent, would I adapt to that pretty quickly as well or would I constantly be mad about that? Yeah. So um, the uh, negative effect of uh, something that's a loss uh, tends to be more intense in the short term. So, for example, you would feel less positive or less pleasure from gaining uh, a 20% hike in your salary than you would feel pain from a 20% reduction in salary. But you're going to adapt to that as well. There was actually a new paper that was interesting. It it kind of pointed to some individual differences on tendencies to adapt. It turns out that the more conscientious you are, um, this is a personality trait, uh, the more you're going to get affected by these increases and reductions in salary. But by and large, people adapt to both positive and negative things. Interesting stuff. And so in your book, um, we might be, I guess, it seems like the premise of the book is we, we might be, mis, uh, be misinformed or, or overestimating the value of, of our, our progress at work. Uh, as in that we expect it to bring a lot of happiness, but it yeah, doesn't. and it doesn't do it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, not just wealth. Uh, you pointed to wealth, but uh, other kinds of things as well, like fame, for example. We get used to that. We might get used to status. Uh, we might used to get. Uh, we might get used to the amount of control that we have, and so on. So it turns out that all of these, what might we call extrinsic yardsticks of success, you know, these are the yardsticks that conventionally uh, we use to assess whether somebody's arrived, right? I mean, if Mm -hmm. somebody's, like, successful, uh, the first thing that comes to mind is, oh, he must be making a lot of money, or he must be owning a big home, or he must be high uh, up in his organization, and so on. Um, It turns out that we get used to all of these extrinsic yardsticks relatively quickly, um, and therefore they stop uh, giving you sustained levels of happiness. They might boost your happiness levels in the short run, but in the long run. Now, why, Raj, why did you end up studying this? You're a business professor and not a psychologist. And, you know, there's, there seems to be a lot of books coming out today uh, in kind of, I guess, in the happiness category. Um, but you, you're, you're, a, you know, you're an aggressive, uh, data-oriented business professor. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. How, how did you start studying this? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, the short answer to that is that I've always been interested in happiness for a very long time, and I just ended up being in the business world for a variety of reasons. Uh, but uh, the more kind of, you know, the, the uh, you might call it a milestone change in my life that prompted me to start teaching a class on happiness and researching it a little more uh, intensely was um, something that happened in 2006 and 2007 when I took a bunch of MBAs from the McComb School of Business at the University of Texas at Austin, which is where I teach, to India, uh, on a business trip, you know, to get to, uh, get them um, familiar with the Indian way of doing business and so on. And I met a lot of my batchmates from 15 years back. Hmm. I have an MBA from India, and it had been 15 years since we had graduated. And I met a lot of my batchmates, and I noticed this very interesting uh, phenomenon, which is a lack of, seeming lack of correlation between career success and what I call life success, you know, how happy you are, how fulfilled you are, how meaningful your life seems to be. And I, I was also going through a lean patch myself, you know, I achieved quite a bit on paper, it looked like, you know, I might be considered a very successful guy, I had a PhD from a big, uh, you know, great uni- university, NYU, I was a professor at a top ranked school, and so on. 
but yet if i looked within i felt a sense of emptiness i felt a sense of is this all there is to it you know i didn't feel that i was waking up every day with a great deal of enthusiasm to go to work and you know feeling really pumped and energized and joyous uh, you know so another way to look at it is i was and my friends were in the top 1% in terms of material possessions and access to resources uh, but i don't think we are we were anywhere near the top 1% in terms of how hmm. meaningful fulfilling and happy we were and i thought that this was kind of a interesting and at the same time somewhat disturbing and unfortunate uh, paradox if you will and I, I so i thought okay you know at a university what is my primary job you know i asked myself this question and the answer came to me that it was to give the students the skill sets and tools required to lead a fulfilling meaningful life and uh, enable other people to do the same and uh, if i were, was honest with myself all the courses that i was teaching all the stuff that i was doing i felt that weren't really geared towards fulfilling that objective yeah. so i ended up asking the students would you guys be interested in a course on this fundamental and important question one of life's big questions what are the determinants of a happy and fulfilling life and all of them said yes so i came back home to austin and i put together a syllabus and you know it's really fortunate and and really you know uh, hats off to to the school and the dean for approving a course like this a very unusual course yeah. as you pointed out but you know uh, it's gone from strength to strength uh, over the years i've had the waiting list only increase and uh, then a coursera course on the topic came up and now it has over 125,000 students from everywhere in the world every literally every country in the world and it was rated the top um, um mooc it's called massive yeah, open MOOC. online course yeah so it's uh, is it really it's the top rated mooc of, of 2015 according to Holy this cool. uh, third party called class central so this this hunger for ho- happiness is not yeah. not isolated you know it's not only among the mbas or the smart and the successful everybody is very interested in the topic i love that story and the i mean again um uh, that was your cohort from your graduate programs um and and here you are at university of texas you don't want these guys to get together or gals to get together in a few years 15 years from now feeling underwhelmed and hungry for some purpose mhm indeed yeah so that was the motivation behind it is to uh, at least you know sow a seed of uh, this kind of thinking in their head so that when they arrive at that point in the mid 40s or whatever and look back and ask themselves you know is this all there is to it they at least remember that you know what i had a course on this topic and there was a bunch of resources that the course pointed to let me look them up again you yeah. know so that's the intent yeah incredible um and talk to us about um one of the things i know you mention a lot is the mental chatter Mm-hmm. And right. help me understand that. And, and does, I guess is that just us being overwhelmed by these in, these extrinsic factors? What what is mental chatter? Yeah. So mental chatter is uh, the kind of voice in the back of your head, and uh, most of us are familiar with that voice. It's a voice that's going in the background, commenting on how we are doing something. You know, it might say things like Raj, you know, you're really doing well now, or Raj, you really kind of blew it, and so on. and this is the judgmental voice the criticizing voice it's also the voice that kind of taps into our emotional tenor for the day or for the moment um and uh, that's quite different from this mental chatter is quite different from what we consciously tend to think about um so uh, you know uh, people who do research in this area call um uh, the part of the brain that is associated with mental chatter the default mode network or a dmn this is the part of the brain that's producing uh thoughts are kind of spontaneously by default and uh, that mental chatter uh what my colleagues and I discovered uh, gives you a very good insight into uh how happy you are how meaningful and fulfilling you find life to be 
And most of the time, we don't really pay that much attention to the mental chatter. It's kind of going on in the background, almost on the edge of consciousness and what, what we're conscious of and what we're not conscious of. Um, and the task in this exercise, the mental chatter exercise, is to actually try and tune in to that mental chatter. Hmm. And uh, one of the best ways to tune into it is to actually try and not think. You know, just kind of sit there and then just observe whatever is going on without trying to think. And then all this mental chatter will bubble up and you can pay attention to it. And uh, the task in the exercise is to actually write it down. And when we did that, what happened is we found that, first of all, most people's mental chatter is more negative than positive. And we looked mostly at people who were pretty successful. You know, being from a business school, we looked at the students, the MBA students, the undergrads. We also looked at a lot of people who worked in big firms like, you know, Whole Foods and uh, some other firms like that. Uh, and we found that, first of all, most of people's mental chatter is quite negative. And the second thing that we found, which is actually more interesting to me, um, is that um, the mental chatter seemed to emerge from three basic buckets or three categories. Uh, one of the categories had to do with um, how superior I feel to other people or how inferior I feel to other people. And it seems like a lot of our thoughts are about how do we stack up compared to other people. And most of the time, we tend to think that we're not doing as well as we would hope. Even if we are doing quite well and we are better than other people, we want to be even more superior to them. Hmm. Um, so that's the reason for the negativity in that context. Uh, then the second bucket is uh, about love and relationships. You know, I, I'm already growing old. I don't have a partner. You know, I don't have a, a, ch a child. You know, I'm never going to ever, you know, settle down in terms of my personal life and so on. So that's the second big category. And the third big category has to do with control, has to do with how frenetic your life is, how out of control your life is, how many more list things you have on your, you know, list of things to do than you can ever complete and uh, how life seems so short and uh, you're out of time and out of breath and uh, that category of uh, thoughts. So uh, that gives us insights into why we aren't feeling as happy and fulfilled as we could or should be despite our achievements is because we're constantly comparing ourselves to other people in terms of superiority. We aren't satisfied with our relationships and we have just taken on much, much more. Uh, we have bitten off more than we can chew. Hmm. We've taken on more on our plate than we can handle. And the, these three insights then uh, give you kind of a, a kind of at least a platform for understanding, okay, how can you now steer the ship in the right direction? How can you correct for this set of mistakes that you've made uh, that have contributed to your life being unhappy? Uh, and that's, that's the idea. Wow. And that seems like a powerful way too to just identify when you are in your chatter is mm -hmm. the, minute, the minute you're comparing yourself in you know hierarchy superiority in or you know bemoaning your relationships or uh, worried about lack of control you're probably chattering. Yeah, there's a lot of chatter going. On. That's amazing. That's pretty neat. I mean, it's funny because we kind of know those categories naturally. I mean, it, it felt like you were just explaining my morning drive to work. <laughs> as I'm wondering you, where you I fit. You sound like a happy guy to me, though. I am, but it's a lot of it's just caffeine. Um, uh. <laughs> well, let's take a let's take a break, Raj. This is fascinating to me, and I think for our listeners, we'll come back and continue the discussion um, more with uh, Raj Ragunathan when we come back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Helping you understand uh, yourself, your, your, your guide and your path to happiness, folks. It's inside you. You've got this light that'll take you there. You just got to maybe turn off the chatter, focus in a bit, maybe get to the intrinsic motivators. Stick with us. More when we come back. Be happy. 
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. On the phone with us is uh, Dr. Raj uh, Ruganatan, and he is... He really is the number one online MOOC, if you've ever heard of a MOOC. It's, a, it's an online training um, rated number one in 2015. His class that he teaches at the University of Texas is, uh, is the number one class, folks. They, people are, they, they want to learn how to, how to be happy. And uh, Dr. Ragunatan is an award-winning professor of marketing at the McCombs School of Business at the University of Texas, Austin, and uh, he's also the author of the book, If You're So Smart, Why Aren't You Happy?, which is a pretty good question. Dr. Ragunatan, welcome back to the show. Thanks for being with us again. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Matt. Thank Te- you for inviting me back. Yeah. Teach us um, more about some of the principles that, that uh, need to take place for us to find happiness amidst all of the, you know, the stress of work and the need to deliver. Uh, one way to kind of rephrase what you just asked, Matt, is to ask this question. So what are the determinants of a happy and fulfilling life? And if you look at that question and if you look at the major themes that emerge from uh, the 15, 20 years of research that's gone into it, it seems like five things are very important. The very first thing is that your basic necessities have to be met. You can't be struggling for your next meal and yet be happy, right? Just to get out of unhappiness and into a state of neutrality. In fact, even to entertain this question, what does it take to lead a happy life? You need to have your basic necessities met. Now, I'm going to assume that many of your listeners are past that stage, yeah. right? Uh, that they have enough money to, to make ends meet, and they live in a relatively warm house, and, and you know, the creature comforts are taken care of. Beyond it, three things seem to emerge. Uh, one is a need for mastery, being really good at doing something. The second is a need for belonging, um, to have at least one really intimate relationship. And the third is a need for autonomy, to feel that you're not under somebody else's power, that you're not a puppet in somebody else's hands. So these three needs, you know, I call them MBA, mastery, belonging, autonomy. Huh. I'm from a business school. Of course, it's all yeah. going to be an It's MBA, always right? about the MBA, isn't it, Raj? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but here the MBA is slightly different, right? I mean, it's not a master's in business administration. It's mastery, belonging, and autonomy. Now, If you understand this, you can also kind of understand why it is that we have these three categories of mental chatter. We have mental chatter about superiority because we want to be a master of something that we do. And one of the kind of ways that um, we can gauge whether we are progressing towards mastery is by comparing ourselves to other people and assessing whether we are doing better than other people. If we are, then we feel that, yeah, we must be progressing towards mastery because we are better at running the 100 meters race uh, compared to, let's say, you know, our neighbor or Usain Bolt, right? I mean, he's the best in the world. Um, So he's a master at that, right? Uh, Because he's the best. Um, uh, Likewise, belonging, you know, the reason why a lot of our mental chatter is about intimacy and relationships is because we want this belonging. And therefore, we kind of constantly worry about whether other people love us enough, whether we have, we get enough attention from other people, whether we have enough Facebook likes and so on and so forth. And likewise, uh, the reason why we worry a lot about whether a life is in, under control is because we have this desire for autonomy. We want to be free. We want to not be obligated or pressured by life to do things that we don't want to do. Um, that's why we worry a lot about um, biting off more than we can chew and life being out of control. Hmm. Now, if you understand this, and then uh, you can ask yourself this question. So we have all these needs, uh, MBA, and we can't be happy unless we have those things, but am I approaching it the right way? So is there another way to uh, achieve mastery or, or progress towards mastery that does not involve 
social comparisons. And it turns out there is. That's a more productive way, not just to be happy, but actually even to be successful in the long run. In a way, it's kind of a best-kept secret. Uh, and that way is to follow your passion and to follow what um, this researcher, Mihai Sheiks and Mihai, calls flow states. I love flow it. states are those yeah. states in which you get so absorbed in an activity that you completely lose track of time. You lose track of, um, you know, you merge with the activity and you're no longer self-conscious about how you're doing. And the mental chatter actually stops because you're completely into the activity, right? Uh, and it turns out most of us at one point or the other have experienced flow. I'm sure you get into flow in doing your job as yeah. a viewer, right? Um, yeah. As a radio talk host. And likewise, everybody's got some domain in which they find flow. Uh, the unfortunate thing is we get distracted from it because... You know, other people tell us that, you know, that's not a worthy pursuit. You know, you can't be making mannequins for a living, even if you get into flow. I mean, that's not going to give you money. Right. You better become uh, an investment banker or a consultant or a movie producer or whatever, you know. So we get distracted away from our flow-inducing activities to other things. But pursuing flow not just makes us happy, but is also really the only reliable means of mastery. Pursuing superiority over other people might, in the short run, um, motivate you to uh, start a task and uh, put in a lot of effort into that task. But in the long run, it's actually going to burn you out, and you're not going to end up being a master of that domain uh, yeah. as much as you're likely to be if you pursue your flow. That Likewise, is interesting. Um, See, what you're doing, though, it's so interesting, Raj, just as uh, somebody that's been following all of these thought leaders. I mean – you're you're tying into some of the most incredibly basic theories and um, bringing it, you know, to the average, you know, yeah. business. Yeah. I mean, really now yeah. everybody, but you were at first teaching business students. Mm-hmm. It's powerful. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I agree. Um, I, that, that is what I'm doing. I'm not kind of reinventing the wheel. No, but it's, it's, just, but uh, it's also brilliant. It in a way right. that, yeah. It's yeah. cool. So, uh, I, by the way, Matt, I can continue on with the other. No, do please. Yeah, go ahead. We make. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, uh, belonging. Uh, you know, we kind of want to be the center of attention and be loved, etc. But if we just turn it around and ask ourselves this question, you know, there must be a lot of people who need love. And how about I serve them rather than looking at it from my self-centered perspective? So you become the provider of love. And when you do that, you automatically enhance your chances of forging these intimate, deep, meaningful relationships by serving other people. Uh, and that's a much better way to be happy because when you serve other people, the story you're telling yourself internally is that, you know what, my cup of intimacy is full, which is what is enabling me to afford the luxury of actually turning it around and asking myself, can I serve other people? And I feel like a queen, king or a queen when I serve others rather than like a beggar when I need others to serve me and love me. So mm. that's a very powerful story to tell yourself from the point of view of happiness, um, uh, to serve other, other people. And uh, finally, uh, with regard to control and autonomy, um, if you stop asking yourself, uh, am I enough sufficiently in control of other people and over outcomes that I want and about life in general, and ask yourself this question, am I in control of my feelings and thoughts, right? So you start taking what I call internal control, um, and that's a very important milestone in any serious happiness seeker's um, path is that you arrive at this milestone at one point or the other where you tell yourself that, look, I mean, I've been seeking for happiness outside of me all along, thinking that if only I get dash, fill in the blanks, I'm going to be happy. And then I've discovered over and over and over again that whatever happens, you know, the the dash, whatever is in the dash, it gets fulfilled. Yeah, I am happy, but only for a while. I can't sustain it. Uh, And so you finally arrive at this wisdom that happiness doesn't lie in, you know, fill in this blanks, Uh, fill in the blank. 
um, it lies in my taking kind of personal responsibility for my own happiness, mm-hmm. taking this internal control. And so you end up practicing uh, those strategies that enable you to uh, maintain a sense of internal equanimity uh, regardless of what happens outside of you. So you can be happy, you can be peaceful, you can be calm, even if others around you, even important people in your life, you know, your spouse or your boss, uh, are toxic. Uh, you can be happy regardless of um, whatever outcomes you're handed. Now, granted, this is going to take a lot of time and practice, but we have lots of examples of people who've done this, you know, like Mahatma Gandhi or Nelson Mandela, um, who actually were happy, peaceful, tranquil, despite being in extremely harsh uh, external circumstances. And so that's the idea, is that instead of pursuing mastery through superiority, instead of pursuing belonging through needing to be loved, instead of pursuing autonomy through being in control of external circumstances, you pursue them through pursuing a flow, pursuing the need to love and give, and pursuing internal autonomy. So I know that I've given you a oh, lot of information here in a very short time. Yeah. Um, but hopefully it makes some sense. No, I think I think it really does. And um, Raj, as you as you're kind of wrapping it up, you started to talking about five determinants, one of which was basic necessities. Mm-hmm. Um, what were what were the other ones? Yeah. So the other three are MBA, mastery, belonging, okay. autonomy. That's three the of the f- last okay. one. Yeah. What's the last? Yeah. One? So so basic necessities and then MBA. Uh, the very last one is actually perhaps the most important one, which is the attitude you bring to the pursuit of MBA and life in general. You know, and I characterize this attitude as either coming in the form of what I call an abundance mindset. Mm. That is that you feel that, you know, I have enough. My life is generally good. I'm taken care of. Um, or a scarcity mindset, which is that I don't have enough. Life is a zero-sum game, and my win is going to come at somebody else's loss, and I better hold and grab. Um, and so depending on the, which mindset you adopt, it makes a big difference to how you pursue M, B, and A. If you're approaching those three goals from the abundance mindset, you're going to be willing to pursue mastery through enjoyment and flow and what you like to do. You're going to be willing to pursue belonging through needing to love because you feel that your life is already abundant. You're going to be willing to take internal control. If you approach them through the scarcity mindset, you're going to approach mastery through wanting to beat other people, wanting to be superior to them. You're going to approach belonging through wanting to be loved. And you're going to approach autonomy through resting control over other people and over outcomes. Mm. You're going to be desperate for control. Raj, in in about one minute, tell me if there's one thing – I always call it the one thing – the one thing that the Mm -hmm. the listener can do today, right now, that would have the Mm -hmm. biggest impact other than, of course, buying your book. um, (laughs) What is the one thing that makes the biggest difference right now to get started on? Okay. Yeah. So the one thing that I would say is that if you can somehow – get into the habit of taking just a couple of minutes every night before you go to bed to note three good things that happened to you that day. Um, Just little good things, you know. It might be things like, you know what, I forgot to rain my plants, water my plants today, but it was raining, and therefore I got some free water, right? Or a stranger smiled at me. Um, It can be little good things like that, not necessarily that you got a big raise or, you know, uh, you won the lottery. Um, If you can just make a note of small, three small good things that happen every day, it's going to steer you in the direction of abundance. Um, So because I really like you and your listeners, uh, I'm also going to give you a bonus one. Sweet. Yeah, please. Another thing. Yeah. Yeah, If you can just make sure that you lead a life in which you maintain a healthy lifestyle, you know, eat well, sleep at least seven hours a day, and move a little bit more uh, if you're sedentary, uh, if you have a sedentary job, 
um, move a little bit more than you uh, normally would. You know, if you just, you know, there's a really great book called Eat, Move, Sleep by yeah. Tom Rath. Yeah. Um, so if you just do a little bit of each of these and you maintain a healthy lifestyle, you're going to see that your life kind of is a little more enjoyable from the inside out. You feel like each of your cells is, is a little more joyous and healthy and bubbling with energy. And uh, that combined with the three good things is going to almost certainly put you on the right path. And oh. if it doesn't, write to me. I'll give you a free copy of my book. There you go. I think it'll work. I think it'll work. Dr. Raj Ragunathan, thank you again so much for your great work. Absolutely, Matt. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much. You too. And honored to, uh, honored to learn from you. Dr. Raj Ragunathan, again, uh, remember, you, you can find him if you go to happysmarts.com. His book, If, you are smart, if You're So Smart, Why Aren't You Happy? Um, and again, go look up uh, his University of Texas um, online MOOC. Uh, it's the number one MOOC in 2015. Pretty cool stuff. And what a great uh, spirit that Raj brings to his work Honestly, how good would it feel to just to not have to be so comparative, to not have to constantly be wondering where you are in your mastery, your superiority, and your love, and your relationships, and your ability to control? That's where the peace comes from, when you can just be centered. We'll take a break, folks. Come back, continue the discussion. In just a few seconds, stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Love a good guest. You just can't beat it. Three buckets that we're constantly chasing down and uh, trying to master. And you think about it, we don't, we just do it naturally, right? But a lot of our mental chatter is your head trying to justify or compare or, you know, correct you to get back on the path where you're less. Us, you know, out of sync. Speaking of out of sync, um, a 12-year-old Western New York girl wound up running 10 extra miles after she got into the wrong road race. Oh, come on! I know. Lee Adianez a- 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 Rodriguez had registered for a 5K race that was part of last Saturday's Rochester Regional Health Flower City Challenge. She thought she was arriving late at the starting line when the race started, so she began running with the rest of the runners. It turned out that she was actually running with the half marathoners on the 13.1-mile course and not on the 5K-mile or 3.1-mile course. Rodriguez says she realized about halfway through that she was in the wrong race but decided to finish. She completed the half marathon in 2 hours, 43 minutes, 31 seconds. How cool is that? I mean, I would do that just because of sheer embarrassment. Actually, no, I wouldn't. If I found out that I was uh, accidentally in a half a marathon, I would... I'm done. I'd, I'd be done, and I'd call a taxi over, an Uber car. In the and, middle of the race. Uh-huh. <laughs> just Uber my way. Catch you later, <laughs> fools. Like, this was dumb. How did I, how did I get here? Yeah, I would just Uber my way back to the starting line. So super cool. Lie Denise, Lie Denise, I don't know how you say your name. Rodriguez, congratulations. You just ran yourself 
half a marathon. By the way, it's probably not healthy for 12-year-olds to run half marathons. I mean, that's a, it's hard on the body. Have you ever read about how Spartans were trained? No. Have you? Well, my, my brother has, and he told me. What did he tell you? They, they run them like they tell them they're going to do 5Ks, and then they end up running half marathons. Well, like they have full armor on, Ugh. and like they have – like for them, it's, it's okay to steal. Like they're encouraged to steal, but if they get caught, they get killed. And so, like, they go through this whole, like, childhood of, like, wow. learning to steal, but, like, is in this... danger of being killed. Well, this explains a lot, Ben. Is this, is this what you were raised on? Um, some, of, some of the principles. Is that why you wear applied. armor? Yeah, I understand. Don't worry about it. But it does explain a lot. Is that why you always yell, Sparta! <laughs> We, we are, are smart. <laughs> That's it. Good times. Always fun with Ben. We were just joking at the break that none of you even know what he really looks like because we keep him in a box. At the end of the show, we just lock him in his box. He's a really good-looking guy. So if there are any ladies out there looking, half of what we've said about him is true and the other half totally true. So watch out. one eight five five chat byu one eight five five chat byu We'd love to... Line your daughters up with this ruggedly good-looking 24-year-old. Are you 24? 22. 22. 22-year-old. Acts like he's 18, though. That's the neat thing about it. I usually get 14, so yeah. that's actually a big You're getting better. So. Aging. We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us.